New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Many self-help books promise us success and fulfillment if only we follow the author's prescribed plan. Such strategies often include developing effective habits, expanding our social network, and visualizing our future success. But what about those of us who never seem to achieve our goals no matter what we do or which plan we follow? When our attempts at success seem to collide with roadblocks and dead ends, our guest today suggests that exploring family history can be an important direction to pursue. Unresolved traumatic events in our families can hinder how success flows to us and how well we're able to receive it. Today we'll be exploring inherited family traumas with our guest, Mark Wolin. Mark Wolin is the founder and director of the Family Constellation Institute. He has taught at the University of Pittsburgh, the Western Psychiatric Institute, the California Institute of Integral Studies, and in addition to many training centers, clinics, and hospitals. He's the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. Join us for the next hour as we explore inherited trauma with our guest, Mark Wolin. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mark, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here, Justine. It's great a pleasure to have you. I would like to begin with a little bit of your background and in, in how you came into this work and your own trauma that you experienced, I think, in your early 30s. Can you describe that for us? About 25, 26 years ago, I lost the vision in one of my eyes, and it just kept getting worse, and I went to the doctors and had many tests, and the doctors determined I had an idiopathic condition without a cure called central serous retinopathy. Um, I didn't just have the standard kind. I happened to have had the chronic kind that constantly um, leaked, the, specifically the retina, would uh, open and uh, leak, and then there'd be scar tissue on the retina. The way my condition was going, the doctors told me that I can expect to uh, perhaps be legally blind and that it would begin to affect the other eye. I I was terrified, actually, and panicked, and um, I uh, 
handed the keys over to a business that I was running, and off I went on a search for healing, a search that led me halfway around the globe um, to learn from some pretty amazing, profound, wise teachers who um, taught me some fundamental fundamental principles, one of which was to go home and to heal my relationship uh, with my parents, which was pretty impossible because it was pretty broken. Um, In fact, I remember standing in line all day to see this great teacher, and as I'm waiting in line, probably about eight hours in in the white robe that everybody wore, I was, and I had been a, uh, I had by this time uh, been practicing meditation and uh, fasting. And in fact, I thought when I got to the front of the line, um, he would look at me and see what a great meditator I was and crown me meditator of the year because, of course, I was moments away from enlightenment. But um, that's not what happened. When I got to the front of the line, he looked right through me and he said, go home and call your parents. I, I was livid. I was devastated, livid. I surely he had to have misread me. I thought, now just find a even a greater spiritual teacher, and well, that's what I did. I remember going to an even greater teacher, uh, waiting in line all day, wearing the the robe, the whole bit. And um, when I got to the front of the line, the exact same thing: go home and make peace with your parents. And this wasn't going to be an easy job because I thought I had outgrown my parents or traded my parents in for spiritual parents or whatever you think on that journey. Um, eh. To go home and heal with my parents, fundamentally, I had to heal the inherited family trauma that stood in the way. I just didn't know that at the time. Three, well, all of my grandparents had been orphaned in some way. Three of them lost their mothers when they were babies or toddlers. And the fourth, she lost her dad when she was one. And ultimately, her mother's attention too, because her mom would have been grieving. So this pattern of being broken from a mother's love, this is what passed forward in my family. Um, I remember oh, I don't know, being five or six years old, whenever my mom would leave the house, I'd run into her room, pull open her drawers and uh, pull her scarves or nightgowns to my face to breathe in her scent because I thought I'd never see her again. Um, It's a funny, 40 years later, I said to my mom, I said, Mom, do you know that when you would leave the house, I would cry into your clothes? And she looked straight at me and she said, you did that too? When my mother left the house, I, I did the same thing. Wow, wow, that's um, that's an amazing story, and and you had no idea about your own mother that she had she did that same pattern. I had no idea what I was trying to heal. I was just losing my sight and terrified, and I I would have tried anything. The juice fast didn't work. The hands on healing didn't work. The supplements and. Yeah, all the things that I tried, nothing worked. And so here I was, well, I'll try this. I'll try healing my relationship with my parents. And specifically, it's that anxiety that passed forward from all those grandparents who'd been orphaned. Mm-hmm. 
which was the family pattern. I didn't know at the time that that's what I was healing. All I knew at the time was, I guess I need to clean my relationships up with my folks. So I remember walking up the driveway and my mom was going to hug me. I hadn't seen her in months. And and I, I just was terrified that I would lock up and, and well, that's exactly what happened. I, she went to hug me and it felt like being hugged by a bear trap. And But the difference was I didn't pull away. I said to her, Mom, could you keep hugging me? And she did. And for me, I just wanted to go inside. I had a lot of practice at meditation at this point and a lot of practice being with the uncomfortable sensations that I had. So this was just another terribly uncomfortable sensation, but I had learned to tolerate it and be with it. So uh, for a while, I would just ask her to hug me and to hold me and to see what where I blocked it, where I would shut down, is very informative. And um, after weeks, many weeks, um, something broke, and it was that armor that I had been carrying, that armor of rejecting her and tightening against her because ultimately I was afraid she would leave the way she was afraid her mother would leave, the way her parents did experience somebody leaving their mothers. Right. How about your eyesight? What happened with that? Uh, Well, at this point, I stopped worrying about my eyesight because, you know, I learned not to connect it. The the funny thing, I would try to have supplement and look at the sky to see, you know, you could see the retinal pattern if you looked at a white wall or the sky. So I'd try something new and say, is this working? And I learned the trap that that is to attach your healing to the process or to attach the outcome to the process. I learned that the process in and of itself is the healing, just staying with the process. And I didn't know that my eyesight would come back, but ultimately my eyesight came back uh, fully, really. And, you know, it's funny, when I go to the ophthalmologist and they have me read the chart and they say, what's that say? And I, you know, I read pretty well. I go, E, F, uh, P, And he goes, you're kidding, you can see that? And I say, sure. He says, but you shouldn't be able to see that because your retina is all scarred over the fovea, which is the direct center. Um, But nonetheless, um, I still see it. He he tells me that the eyesight must be ricocheting, the light signals must ricochet off the side of my head. (laughs) They can't explain it. But it's one of those other mysteries that um, maybe we're just not all scar tissue. Maybe there's something else going on. It's going on. Well, I know that in in your experience, in your research, you have noted that that these traumas, family traumas, really affect our DNA. So can you say something about that that research? So when we we have a trauma, it changes us. Um, Literally, literally it uh, changes the way our DNA well, um, it doesn't change the sequence of the DNA, but it changes the way the genes will function, and sometimes for generations. So when we go to have kids, we would like them to come equipped with a clean hard drive, but they're finding out that some of the traumas um, escape the reformatting process. 
that there's this great reformatting process. When we're, we go we're using computer I know, uh, metaphors sorry. here, but <clears throat> that's that's the language of our culture these days. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, but, but you know, it's it seems to be true. There's the, we it, there's already you know there's already an operating system in place that contains the fallout from some of these traumas, uh, traumas of our parents, traumas our traumas our our grandparents' trauma, maybe even our great-grandparents' traumas. So our kids can be born with fears and feelings or symptoms that don't always belong to them. And that, that's, that's what interests me. When I hear language or observe symptoms or find behaviors that sit outside the context of someone's life experience— so in and some of these behaviors might be demonstrated in what kinds of ways? Well, I am very keen on something uh, I've developed called core language, which is the language that we use to describe our fears, our symptoms, our anxieties, our relationships, our parents. The these this core language, um, it, it it's like a breadcrumb trail. Um, It's the emotionally charged words that we will use all the time, especially in our descriptions of the things that are wrong. And we leave a breadcrumb trail. And if you learn to follow it, it will take us back to childhood trauma, of course, but also to traumas in our family history. I'm here with Mark Willen, and he's the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, markwillen.com. And he spells his name W-O-L-Y-N-N, markwillen.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Willen. He's the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. Mark, we're we're talking about some of the research, and you were talking about DNA, and I found there was one particular study that I thought was very important uh, in in showing exactly how this inheritance works. And this was a study done or research done with mice 
on the cherry blossom scent. Can you tell us about that particular research? It's also one of my favorite studies because it shows that the fears of, well, let, for this we have to go back and talk, why, why do we look at mice in the first place? Mice and humans share 99% of the same genetic makeup. So if there's 30,000 genes, mice will share 29,700. I may be off on the figures, but uh, they're so similar, in fact, that we can look at the experiences of mice and then extrapolate. In this one study, they took um, mice, male mice, and they shocked them with an electric shock each time, and this is done out of Emory Medical University in Atlanta, each time the mice experienced the smell, received the smell of the cherry blossom scent, they were shocked with an electric shock. So they take the sperm from the male mice and they introduce it into females who are not shocked, and then they look at the next generation. But let's go back to that first generation that was shocked. So they find that these mice that were shocked have um, changes in the brain, uh, the blood, and the sperm. Specifically in the brain, they have enlarged areas where the smell receptors are so that they can detect this scent at lesser concentrations, which is a self-protective device. If we get into the um, epigenetics and um, some of the positive benefits, I'll, I, I can talk about that shortly, but so the mice would have this experience of um, these enlarged brain receptors and changes in the sperm and the blood. Now, in the next generation, they took male mice that were fathered by this sperm with a non-shocked mother, and they all they did was they introduced the smell, and these mice became jittery and jumpy and experienced the trauma reaction without the trauma itself. So the researchers said, hmm, uh, the fear or the memory of the fear seems to have passed forward through the sperm. Well, the interesting thing is what happens in the third generation. Once again, they take the sperm, introduce it into female mice that were not shocked, and they introduce the smell into the grandpops, into their cages, without the shock. And again, these mice are jittery and jumpy, but they don't have the physical components the enlarged brain, the sperm changes and blood changes, which lead the researchers to say, well, something is clearly going on, says Brian Diaz, the re researcher who's the one who gives all the talks. Something is clearly going on, and it's being communicated through the sperm. And we can show it for three generations, but perhaps not beyond that. So that makes it imperative that we understand our our family tree in, in the form of the trauma that, that we're inheriting. Is that what you're saying? It, it is. Uh, whenever possible, I ask people to shake the family tree to see what falls out. Uh, look back three generations, you know, as far back as your great-grandparents, if you can. Uh, going back to my family, um, if my grandparents are orphans, um, the trauma is with their the great-grandparents and the, between the great-grandparents and the grandparents. So they're babies when they lose their mothers. Um, yeah, shake the family tree. See what stories have never been told or what traumas have never healed all the way or what traumas don't get talked about. Often we think that we're doing our children a favor by keeping our lips sealed 
Well, really, the, the, the doorway to the past, our lips tightly sealed. But it's not true because our children can be involved with feelings, fears, and think that they're just like we can think that we, we are the issue, that something must be off inside me. Something must be wrong with me that because I feel this. We never think to link our experience, our issue, with the events of the previous generations. You know, an, another uh, example that you've given in in your work is one, I, uh, it was someone named Tyler. And I thought that that was a very interesting example. I, I mean, that may not be his real name, but... Anyway, he he was married. Do you recall uh, I this? Do. Oh, can you tell his story a bit? I can. Um, Tyler and names her changed to protect the innocent. But yes, right. Tyler was married, um, and he and his uh, wife to be, when they were still um, uh, engaged to each other, would have an active sex life. But as soon as he got married, he uh, th- the sex life completely disappeared. He. Um, came to me to work with ED, so he thought. He'd been and to the, ED stands for? Uh, I'm sorry, erectile dysfunction. Yes. And he'd been to the doctors, and everything checked out physically. Everything checked out biologically. There was, there was no physical determinant that they could tell. So he was looking down a different avenue as to what would be a psychological or an emotional, or in this case, a family history cause of the ED. So... I remember his core language, again, those breadcrumb trail, that breadcrumb trail I follow. And he had told his wife, you will leave me and cheat on me within six months. And she assured him, of course, I'm not going to do that. I love you. I want to be with you forever. And he said, nope, you're going to cheat on me within six months. And that was interesting because it wasn't within the experience that they had had prior to being married, nor was it within her experience of being a cheater. So we um, looked into his family history, and I asked him to tell me about his mom or dad, if they had ever had an experience of being cheated on. He said, no. And I said, look, could you go home and ask your dad, please, or your mom, you know, to go home and quiz the family, find a drum up some information. And he came back startled that he asked his dad and found out that his dad had been previously married. And that his dad, within six months of being married, he came home early from the factory and walked in and his wife having an affair with another man. And the marriage, the, the dad was bereft. Um, he went on with life, but a part of him, I think, never really went on again. He married Tyler's mother and everything was fine on the surface, but a piece of the father, I think, stayed broken. And I believe that's how these traumas um, uh, tend to affect us, that there's a part of us that never heals all the way. In fact, part of the trauma pattern stays intact, and that part of the trauma pattern is the, uh, transferred in some way, though they're never quite sure of the mechanism. And in yeah. this case, Tyler didn't even know this about his father, although he was acting out in the same way as if it were his life, as if it were truth for him. Exactly. Exactly. Here he was living a piece of his father's life experience, thinking that it was his issue. Right. And that's that's the big, big thing. What about you, you advise him to go home and talk to his parents? What if our parents 
have died, and, and we can't go back and talk to them. We can't really find out this history. How, how can, can we still do this work? Yes, we can. In fact, sometimes our parents are even alive and they're not talking. Or our parents, you know, they just think that it's best to keep, keep the, the doorway to sleeping, the past. Sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> Let yeah. sleeping dogs lie, exactly. Um, yeah, so whether our parents are deceased or were adopted or our parents have, uh, won't talk, the, the trauma still lives in us. It's written into our verbal language, our body language, what I call our core language, which are our behaviors, our physical symptoms at times, our language that we use, this core language. Can, can I tell a story? Please. Tell- oh, please do. Yes. I love stories, <clears throat> and so do our listeners. I, I worked with a woman who um, she never had anxiety her whole life, but as soon as she got married— and began to have a ba- uh, got pregnant, was going to have a baby. She was overcome with anxiety, and um, uh, I asked her some of the questions I outlined in the book. And she she said, "My worst fear is that I'll do something horrible to harm my baby. It'll be my fault, and I'll harm my new baby." Well, beneath her anxiety was this language, I'll harm my new baby. So I asked her, um, "Did anyone in your family ever harm a baby?" accidentally or purposely? She said, no. And I said, sit with it for a minute. Are you sure no one in the family ever harmed a baby? And she said, no. And she went, oh my gosh. And she started to tell the story of her. When her grandmother was a a young woman, she lit a candle, which lit the curtains on fire, which lit the house on fire, and she couldn't get her newborn out of the house. And you were never allowed to talk about it. That was that in that family, you never brought that up. Um, however, in that moment, she realized that she had inherited her grandmother's life experience in 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 the in the form of a fear that she'll do something also and harm her baby, and then we could take the steps to heal this pattern and make her a much more calm mother after that. So one of the ways that you work with people in in this core language approach is to have them ask the question, something like, is is this your problem or or is it someone else's? Help me with the question. One of the things I teach is a bridging question. Uh So when I hear very particular language, like I'll hurt somebody and it'll be my fault, um, I'll ask what I call, very simple really, just um, did someone in your, because we don't generally make the link. We think it's us. We think we we have all those feelings and associations and and, uh, chemicals firing whenever we think or say that type of sentence, and we think we're the problem. So very simply put, when, when I'll ask somebody, uh, or I'll do a traumagram with them, a genogram, where we'll look at the traumas in the family history, I'll ask, Are there, was there someone in your family that had caused to feel the same way as you? And this can um, pull up a lot of information. So this is uh, a different kind of... Uh let's say, therapy than traditional therapy in, in so far as what would you... We're, we're looking at biologically inherited traumas here. So it's a brand new field. So not a whole lot of therapy has gone in this direction. And, and 
and finally science is catching up and telling us, um, oh, I, I'd love to mention some of the work out of uh, Mount Sinai Medical in New York with Rachel Yehuda, if we have time for this. Um, science is finally telling us that, hey, if we're born with a pattern, we need to look back and make sure this isn't a family pattern, an inherited family pattern. So, um, Rachel Yehuda has really done a lot of work on PTSD uh, and in other other passed down sort of genetically passed down traumas, like uh, with the uh, Holocaust victims and so forth. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Mark Willen, and he's the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Willen, and he's the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. And we were just talking before the break, Mark, about the work of Rachel Yehuda, who works with uh, PTSD research and Holocaust victims and so forth. Can you say a little more about the work that she's discovering? To me, she's a the rock star neuroscientist um, who's uncovered so many interesting connections and made the work very relevant for people because she shows it in humans. We, we, we can see it for three generations in mice, and she's able to show us at least two generations in humans. She looked at the Holocaust survivors and their children, and she found that the children share the same trauma symptoms as their parents, specifically the low levels of cortisol, the stress hormone that gets us back to normal when we have a traumatic event. And she also found the similar pattern in the babies, the children, who were born to mothers who were pregnant at or near the World Trade Center when it was attacked during 9-11. And she also found that these children uh, had 16 different genetic markers and also the cortisol levels were compromised and the symptoms of PTSD. She tells us that you and I are three times more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder if one of our parents had PTSD. And as a result, we're likely to struggle with anxiety or depression. But my favorite study came last year. Um, She announced in biological psychiatry in August of 2015 that Holocaust survivors and their children share the exact same gene changes in the exact same region of the same gene. I think it's the FKBP5 gene, but it, it was just, for me, the crowning piece of work. Explain that more to us so we understand why it's exciting to you, what okay. that showed. What well, showed that if the parents had the trauma, not only did the children have the 
they acted out the trauma, the anxiety and the depression or the symptoms of the trauma, that they literally had a physiologic sign of the depression, um, that in the gene, the gene would have had that same pattern, that gene change pattern in the same part of that gene, the same region of the gene, which means it could be found biologically as well as emotionally. So that brings up the question, Mark, um, let's say a parent, a mother, has experienced this trauma, and then she passes it on to her child. What about siblings? Uh, why is it that some siblings then express this emotional trauma in some way, and other siblings don't have a problem with it, so to speak? You, you hear what my question is? I do. And it's really quite a mystery. We don't know why that is. Um, one sibling might carry the trauma pattern on dad's side of the family. Uh, perhaps even the first boy in the family. Often I'll see the first boy might, though it's not always this way, might carry his father's trauma. And the first girl, she might carry her mother's trauma. But it's not always that that way. It can switch. And later siblings might even carry a piece of the trauma from the grandparents. It's like a big pizza and everybody's taking a slice, but you never know who's going to get the pepperoni. I see. I see. So that's still kind of out there as far as research goes. But we do see it manifest in different ways with different people. My, my hope is that with the the book and all this new research, that there's more research, that this begets even, uh, we, we get answers to some of these questions. I'd like to see this field grow. Yes. I know that you have a, a story about someone who did some cutting and that, can, can you share something about that story? I can. It was one of the early cases when I had no idea what I was looking for, but it, it didn't belong in the context of her life experience. So a cutter had come to work with me, and she was cutting so deeply into her arms and into her legs, uh, into her abdomen, that she would often be hospitalized for loss of blood or infections. And, um, you know, the, I, I just kept asking questions, and one of the questions, luckily, I stumbled on was her core language. I said, can you tell me, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? The minute before you cut, right when you're about to use that razor and make that cut, what are you thinking? And she said, I, I, I deserve to die. And I said, I'm looking at a 24-year-old female. Her life's just begun. And I said, you deserve to die. What have you done? Did you harm somebody? Did you kill somebody? Did you break up with somebody and they committed suicide? What did you do? She said, nothing like that. So I started to ask about her family history, and that's when she dropped the bomb. Her grandmother was an alcoholic, and she was driving drunk with her grandfather in the passenger seat. And she hit a pole and lived, but the grandfather went through the windshield and got all cut and lacerated, deep cuts, from which he bled to death. And in that moment, it became clear to me that there was a connection. And, well, the connection I was making at that moment was she was bleeding 
through the cuts, the lacerations like her grandfather, and carried the feelings I deserve to die like her grandmother, which proved to be a bullseye because once we worked with it, she stopped cutting. That's a very traumatic story. And so, it, so in, in other words, knowing this family history, having it's more than just knowing it, though, isn't it, Mark? There's something else that needs to be done for the true healing to take place. Can you say something about that? Yes, yes, I'd like to say something about that. Knowing is only effective in a few cases. I, uh, just having the trauma, uh, the, the lights go on, does not always bring healing. To heal, we often have to have an experience large enough to overshadow or override our old trauma pattern, our old trauma feelings, our old, our old habit of feeling bad. And when we practice these new feelings from this new experience, and so when I work with people, um, I, it, it, it's about bringing a new experience that's larger than that trauma feeling that the person can incorporate, uh, uh, integrate into the body. So practicing things like the the good sensations, the breathing, the the sentences that are said, the sentences that we say, um, something visceral that we could feel in the body. Um, well, that's how neuroplasticity happens. We focus and practice on the new image, the new sensations, and we create new neural pathways in our brain. And I, I teach how to do this where our brains can change. So uh, we do this through ritual. It's not just doing it once, but it's like we repeat these, these visualizations or we repeat. Say something more about that. Absolutely. We repeat uh, a ritual um, that's, you know, for instance, some people, if they're connected to some uh, grandmother who died, for instance, this woman who did the cutting, um, she had the idea that she would light a candle for her grandmother and talk to her grandmother through this lighting the candle in a way to um, say, Grandma, I'm, I know here I am with your feeling that I deserve to die. I know it's not my feeling. Um, other people will visualize a conversation. Do you know that when we visualize an action or a conversation, ignites or activates the same regions of the brain um, as, with, as though we're actually doing it. So it, in some ways, you're doing it, whether you're doing it or visualizing it. That, that's used in sports a lot, that, yes. that you visualize making the basket or whatever it is or hitting the baseball. You visualize it, and it actually translates into the body because the body thinks it actually did it. Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. So this is, I I, I can go. I would like to go back to the uh, your core language approach, and I know with that, you have um, there are four steps to it. So you might talk about those four steps if you don't mind. Yes. I uh, well I I I want. When people, the first step, the core complaint, I'm very interested in the specific language that we use when we talk about our relationship, our health issue, our success issue, depression, um, f- 
there's many questions that I, I, I put in that book about um, digging down into your core complaint to unearth that true language, what I call the core language, the breadcrumb trail that we were talking about right. earlier to follow. And so the core complaint will give us um, this rich language that has the quality of being out of context with our life experience. And that's when you know that you can look into beyond our life experience and maybe beyond even our in utero experience and maybe look into the family history. So the one thing I ask people to uncover is this rich, idiosyncratic, um, almost accidental but peculiar language that we use every day. Um, it, when you find this core language, it's like finding a missing piece of the puzzle that lets the whole picture come into view that gives you a context for why why we feel the way we do. So that that's one. So just just stopping with that one, I just want to say that I, I tried this because you outline this in your book, so you would have these exercises, and so I did them. And one of the things that I came up with was um, one of the phrases that I've often used for the last 20, 30 years is, well— you can't fall out of the universe is one of the phrases I've used. But in doing the exercise, I realized that, oh, wait a minute, that is my fear that you actually can fall out of the universe, that you actually can become untethered, ungrounded. There is no ground of being underneath you. There is nothing swaddling you. There is nothing holding you. And it was just an, a revelation to me to to come to this. So I I, I want to thank you for for like the exercises that you provide that get us to this core complaint that is very visceral, and then then you can start to work from there. I'm so pleased that you did the exercise and made that profound connection. And even a sentence like that, that there's nothing holding us, that we can just die or fall away or be stripped away. There's so much, there's so many places that can go to when explored. So, yeah, thank you for doing that. I want to remind our listeners that I am here with Mark Willen, the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, markwolin.com. He spells his last name, W-O-L-Y-N-N, markwolin.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mark Wallen, and he's the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. And we're talking about the core language approach and the four components of it, and you've, we've spoken about the core complaint. And the second one is what? The core descriptors. So when I'm asking people the, uh, their core descriptors, I'm asking them really to describe their parents. Um, that lets me know a fundamental um, experience they had when they were small, whether they have rejected a parent. And then the um, consequences of this can be we can end up rejecting aspects of ourselves without even realizing we're doing so. Um, what we find negative in that parent, um, we can express disowning ourselves and then never see when we're the same. Or we can project it onto another um, uh, without realizing we're doing so. For instance, if our mother was distant, we're waiting for our partner to be distant. Or worse, we'd be distant with ourselves. Uh, if our parent ignored us, we ignore the small part of us inside. So uh, I, I look for what I call the four unconscious themes, which is a subset of the core descriptors. So whether we've rejected a parent or we've merged with a parent's life experience, dad fails, we fail. Mom uh, gave away a child or lost a child and we aborted our first child. Um, Dad's and mom's marriage ended, thir- ended at 30, and then at 30, we find ourselves pulling away from our partner unconsciously. So what, what we find when we do these descriptors, what we find at the end of these descriptors, you have us go back and kind of read it over in, in this way, and, and we, we find words they're just we isolate on the different words that we've used is and how does that work? Those words can indicate that there's been trauma. So when we look through the, the way we describe our parents can indicate that something happened between our parents and us or to our parents or between our parents that eroded our relationship with them. And it gives us an avenue as where we could start looking for some of these traumas. You asked me earlier um, if how we can find uh, trauma when nobody's talking. When we f- do these core descriptors, the core complaint, later on I'll talk about the core sentence and the core trauma, when we lay out what I call the core language map, um, even if we don't know the trauma, we know the trauma. We're a, we're a walking map of these traumas in our family. So this goes back to the breadcrumbs that that words themselves are language, the language we use and the language that we react to with emotion are the breadcrumbs. Absolutely. So when we can find this emotionally charged language, that will lead us back. And that's what we're looking for. I'm interested in the emotionally charged language that we uh, describe, the way we describe our parents, our partner, our boss, those, those core descriptors. So then going, going back to the other, uh, the last two the, of the core language, the, the third one is? The core sentence. Each of us has a core sentence. And the core sentence is the, um, our worst fear our worst nightmare, 
the feeling that we walk around with every day that we either choose our experiences because of this fear or not choose our experiences because of this fear. In other words, the fear can guide our lives unconsciously. So I have people pull out the nugget of their worst fear, which I call the core sentence. And often that can be That isn't just our sentence. It's often the family sentence, the grandmother's sentence, the grandfather's sentence. This can be a sentence that's traveled in our family for generations. So that's that's very significant. (laughs) When and 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 you you have a way of just guiding us. And when when I first opened your book, I thought, well, how in the world am I going to get to that sentence? But but you really have a way of just step by step guiding us. And the last one, the last part of uh, that language approach is. The, what? the core trauma. The core trauma. So I teach the, my students and my readers um, to create a genogram, really a traumagram, looking at the, uh, taking the core sentence and holding it in our awareness while we start to look at the traumas in the family, who would have had cause to feel this way? Where could a sentence like this been birthed? Who did what? Who was excluded? Who was left out? Who was who died young? Who was killed? Who killed somebody? Who felt guilty? Who gained an advantage? All the uh, many of these questions I outline um, in the book. But when we do this genogram right there in front of us, where we can physically see, feel, touch. It's all laid out in front of us, the what happened where. And then we can make the connections that the feeling we have of abandonment that we've lived with our whole lives isn't necessarily our abandonment. That grandmom was left by her mother when she was one, that's where this abandonment truly originated. Right. And when you say uh, genogram, it's like a family tree, but it's a family tree of trauma, of what what were the traumas that were experienced in our family. Yes, it's a two-dimensional family tree that goes beyond a traditional family tree because it's looking at even the people outside our family who've had an effect on our family or the people outside our family who we have had a detrimental effect on. It goes in... Um, Many directions, yes. So just just to reiterate, the, the four are the core complaint, the core language, the core sentence, and the core trauma. So these are the four that uh, you describe within the core language. Yes, yes. the core, the core um, complaint, the core descriptors, the core sentence, and the core trauma. Right, yes. right. And... Um, and it just so I'd love to say a little more as we come towards the end of our conversation here about the ways that we might be able to truly heal it. And I, I know that you mentioned certain things in in your work. You you mentioned something about um, like one of the ones was putting a picture above our bed of the parent that that we feel some trauma with. Can you describe that that particular ritual? I, I love that one in particular. Thank you. Yeah, many of us have a, a, a break in the bond with our mother, let's say I did. And one of the ways we can heal it if she doesn't live in the same city or 
Uh, we don't feel comfortable enough with starting the relationship up right away. We need to do inner work first because, after all, healing um, is an inside job and reconciliation is an inner movement. So we might, or she's deceased, we might put a picture of our mom over our left shoulder above our pillow and we might uh, maybe a certain sentence comes to us. Uh, um, maybe, Mom, uh, meet me in my sleep and um, help me learn to trust your love or teach me how to receive because it's difficult for me to receive. And people can do this as a meditation and it's quite potent. Another one that you mention often in, in your work is breathing exercises. So that breathing into once we discover uh, where this trauma resides in our body, where the emotion, wh what it feels like in our body, where it it mostly resonates in our body. Is it in our gut or isn't it in our heart or or wherever it is uh, that we breathe into it? Can you describe that? So sometimes, let's say, there's a part of us that's very young that uh, was broken from our mother's care because we were in an incubator, and I'm making that up, or mom went on a vacation early, or there was a hospitalization that we were in the hospital with an infection, and, or, um, or it's an inherited break in the bond in, uh, from uh, grandma, mom. Um, we might have a part of ourself that is anxious when we go into relationship, let's say. We, get, we become relational with another person, and all of a sudden we feel that tightening in our solar plexus, our belly. We might even bring a hand to that part of our body um, as though we're bringing touch, our touch to that sensation to hold it. And we might even say words to ourselves like, I've got you, I'll hold you. And then we might bring breath to that same place and hold ourselves, that small part of us that is still experiencing trauma with our breath and say something to ourselves like, I'll breathe with you. When you're alone, I'll stay with you and I'll breathe with you until you're calm. Or we might even just words to that area like, I'm here, I've got you. In fact, when we combine breath, sensation, and awareness, it's very powerful and can shift the inner experience. And as you say, that it actually affects the way our DNA expresses itself. They're showing now that many of the things that we do internally meditate. In fact, there's a great study out at the University of Wisconsin on meditation showing how meditation literally changes gene expression. They're showing that many of these experiences that we, when we create new neural pathways in our brain, neuroplasticity, when we can get our brains to change, um, that we're knocking on the door of gene expression and perhaps can even change the way our genes express. I want to thank you so much, Mark, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I just enjoyed talking to you very much, Justine. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Mark Willen, and he's the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the cycle. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, markwollen.com. And he spells his last name W O L Y N N. Mark 
www.kateswolin.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3580. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions.